Today, we're going to be continuing our series in the Psalms, looking at Psalm 2. So please open your Bibles to Psalm 2. And if you don't have a Bible, just grab one of the Pew Bibles in front of you and turn to page 418. Psalm 2 is closely connected to the Psalm that we looked at last week, Psalm 1. Many Bible scholars say that they stand together as this double doorway into the Psalms. Psalm 1 contrasts the way of the the righteous with the, the way of the wicked, and it calls us to choose which way we will live. Psalm 2 warns us that there is a consequence to the choice that you make. Psalm 1 declares the Lord's authority over individuals. Psalm 2 declares the Lord's authority over the nations. It's hard to trust that God is in control over the circumstances in your life if you don't believe that God is in control of all authority in our time and all throughout history. It's easy to trust that God has your little life in his hand if he has the whole world in his hands. And this is what we see in Psalm 2. God is in control, even in the chaos of everything we're seeing happening in our world, and he will respond in his timing in order to bring justice and judgment on those who have rejected him and his rule. Let's look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he would speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your holy word. Remove any distractions. Show us our sin. Glorify yourself. Magnify your son. And by your spirit, change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted in the Gospels. It's quoted in the book of Acts, in Romans, in Hebrews, 
and in Revelation. The early church understood that this psalm found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If you look at Acts chapter 4, sorry, I'm making you already switch into another book of the Bible. Go to Acts chapter 4. And after Peter and John are released from prison, the church responds by saying this in verses 24 to 28. Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 28. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We learn quite a few things about this psalm in Acts chapter 4. First, these early Christians attribute this psalm to David. You don't even see a, a, a superscript, that little, that little note right underneath the title in the psalm. You, you can see in Psalm 3, it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. But there's not a title there in Psalm 2. But the early church attributed this psalm to David. The New Testament is saying that this psalm was written by David. They also recognized that God was in control even though the scheming and plotting of Herod and Pilate. In fact, Herod and Pilate played into God's plan of redemption. It says, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And then most importantly, these early Christians understood that this psalm found its fulfillment in Jesus. Truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Psalm 2 is about Jesus. For those of you who like to take notes, there's 12 verses in this psalm and four movements, four sections that give this psalm its structure. And each section has three verses. So as we walk through this psalm, we will see, number one, the rebellion of the nations. We see that in verses 1 to 3. Number two, the response of the sovereign God in verses 4 to 6. Number three, the rule of the Son in verses 7 to 9. And fourth, the refuge of the wise in verses 10 to 12. So the rebellion of the nations, the response of the sovereign God, the rule of the Son, and the refuge of the wise. And the main point, what I hope you see in the text, is this. Those who submit to the reign of Jesus have refuge from his wrath. Those who submit to the reign of Jesus have refuge from his wrath. 
Let's look at the first section of this psalm, the rebellion of the nations. In verse 1, the psalmist David asks the question, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? David is shaking his head in unbelief. Why are they raging? Why are they plotting? Don't they know they won't win? We're given this picture of the nations rebelling. And this rebellion is not limited to any social class. Both the people and their leaders, the, the upper class and the lower class, have set themselves against God. The people's plot in vain. That word plot is the same Hebrew word translated meditate that we saw in Psalm, chapter, Psalm 1, verse 2. And so if you think about it, while the godly, while, while they meditate on God's word day and night, the wicked are meditating. They're plotting and scheming against God and his word. But they do this in vain. Vain means empty. It means worthless. Whatever the world is up to, the psalmist makes clear it's not going to work. It's a waste of time. Verse 1, the nations are rebelling. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. The kings set themselves. That word used here is a word that means to get yourself ready for war. And the rulers take counsel together. Think about that. It's hard to get political leaders to agree on anything. But here we have this picture of this worldwide gathering of the nations, setting aside all their differences. They're coming together, and they've decided that it's time to go to war. Now, what enemy could be so threatening that all the nations gather together and set aside all their differences and go to war. What enemy could be so threatening? Look at verse 2 again. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This rebellion is against God and his anointed. In my Bible, that word anointed is capitalized. This is a reference to the Messiah king. There were three anointed offices in Israel, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And the kings were anointed by the prophet as they took the throne. And this anointed king, that, that anointing of the king was a seal. It was a badge of authority that set him apart, kind of like the presidential seal of the United States. The anointed king was God's man. He was given authority and protection of God. And because of this, some Old Testament scholars think that Psalm 2 was written for the coronation of David or maybe some coronation of kings that kind of followed in the line of David. But the words of this psalm are simply too big for a humanly king. 
This psalm points to the one who is greater than David, greater than any king. Psalm 2 can only apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a rebellion towards the king of Jerusalem. Psalm 2 describes the rebellion of the human heart against God. So what's wrong with this world? David says that mankind is in rebellion against God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus. Now in verse 3, the camera closes in on this united nations against God, and they declare their mission statement. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice the wicked leaders see God's authority as bonds and cords. They, they view God's way of life as bondage and oppression, and they desire to get rid of this divine authority. Don't we see that happening in our world today? Doesn't that sound just like our world? People who hate Christ. Leaders and influencers trying to, to shape the way that we think through books and, and blogs and movies and our news feeds and social media, trying to spread their false ideologies and agendas, calling it freedom. They proclaim, believe in yourself. Make your own decisions. And then they try to make Christ's teaching seem oppressive and outdated. The law in which the righteous find delight in Psalm 1, the world views as chains and shackles. The world is not interested in the gospel. They're blind. And every human being by nature is a participant in this great rebellion against God. It's not the leaders only, it's the leaders and the people. And sometimes this rebellion is less dramatic. Many people just simply ignore God and live their lives their own way. They go to school, they raise their kids, they pay their taxes without ever considering following Jesus. One commentator calls this the suburban rebellion. By nature, we all desire to be free from the control of God. This is the heart of sin. A rejection of God's rule in favor of my own. Have you been resisting God's rule over your life? We live in a world that openly opposes God in big ways and in small ways. So as a church, what should we think about this? Will God do anything about it? That brings us to our next section 
The nations have spoken, and now God speaks in verses 4 to 6. We see the response of the sovereign God. So what is God doing when the nations rage and the people's plot and the kings and rulers set themselves against him? Let's first think about what he's not doing. He's not pacing around worried about what he's going to do. He's not gathering his troops together, getting ready to go to war. No one's whisking him away to some undisclosed location where no one can find him. What does the text say that he's doing? While the nations rage, God is where he has always been, sitting on his throne. The camera moves up from the riot of the earth to the heavens into the throne room of God, far beyond the reach of any rebel, and God is sitting. Sitting here is a sign of authority. He's sitting on his throne. He doesn't even get up to deal with them. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. When a creature shakes its fist at the Creator, it's so ridiculous that laughter is the only response. God laughs at mankind's attempt to get rid of him. Do we know who God is? He is the one who has always existed. He is eternal. He is the God who spoke into the void, into nothingness with his own voice, and he declared, let there be light, and there was light. He is the one in whom we move and have our being. All of us right now have breath in our lungs because he is giving us breath in our lungs. How can people think that they're going to get rid of God? How do you go to war against someone like that? God is laughing. He laughs because this uprising doesn't threaten him at all. It says in the text, he holds them in derision. He isn't laughing because the world's rebellion is some sort of silly joke to him. There is a seriousness here. God takes sin seriously. He holds them in derision. It means that he mocks them. And this mocking laughter is part of his judgment towards sinners. When God laughs, it's not funny. God's not laughing with us. He's laughing at us. And then he speaks to them in his wrath. And he terrifies them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God speaks. This is God's message to rebellious mankind. And the message is, it's too late. I've already set my son, my anointed one, on Zion, my holy hill. 
Christ has taken his throne and is presently reigning over all things. The nations have spoken. God has spoken. And now the king speaks in verses 7 to 9. We see the rule of the son. James Johnson says, God's king is not the strong, silent type. God's king is a preacher. The nations speak, the Lord speaks, now the king, king speaks. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, God says that he will take the heir of David as a son. So keep that in mind. He will take the heir of David as a son. There will be this future king whose throne will be established forever. And now the king says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 7 is used several times in the New Testament to point to the authority of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 uses it to refer to the deity of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's also used to declare the resurrection of Christ in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 to 33. Paul writes, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This verse declares the deity of Jesus and it declares the resurrection of Christ. And then in verse 8, the son says that the father says something to him. The father says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Think about that. The nations that are raging against the Lord and his anointed are the Lord's gift and heritage to his son, Jesus Christ. And he has made the ends of the earth his possession, meaning that Jesus Christ is not just king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The point of Psalm 2 can be simply stated in two words. Jesus reigns. It may not always seem that way when you watch the news, but this is the truth. No matter how things may look with the world around us, Jesus reigns over heaven and earth. We read this earlier. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says of Jesus, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate 
fall. Ring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. But also this ends of the earth being Jesus's possession is also an allusion to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The nations becoming his heritage comes through the worldwide preaching of the gospel. Here's the great missionary challenge to the church. Our assignment is to carry the message of God's decree and proclaim the rule of King Jesus. Jesus reigns. But not only does he reign, he also judges. Verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That word shall means that many will resist and be shattered by Christ. He has been given authority to reign, but also authority to judge, to dash unrepentant, sinful rebels into little pieces of pottery. They will be destroyed forever. That's a tough doctrine. We often don't think of Jesus being angry. Right? Those silly paintings and statues that people have in their homes that are breaking the second commandment and are idols. They only present one side of Jesus. There's a popular TV show that presents Jesus as this compassionate guy who cracks jokes and is like everyone else. But that's not who Jesus truly is. He's not like us. He is God incarnate. Yes, he is loving and gracious and kind, but he is also the judge who is angered at the sin of people who reject him and his reign, and he will destroy them if they don't turn from their evil ways. But thank God that's not where this psalm ends. There's an invitation. We've heard from the kings of the earth from God himself, from the Son, and lastly, David positions himself as the counselor to the rebellious nations, giving important and needed advice to them. In verses 10 to 12, he presents the refuge of the wise. So what we have seen, you can't win against the Lord Jesus Christ. And so David encourages the kings and the rulers of the earth to be wise to count the cost. 
And in his warning, it contains a large amount of grace because salvation is extended beyond the limits of the covenant people of Israel to the Gentile nations. Verse 10 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Wise people will not ignore or scoff at the warning that we see here. Powerful people who are prone to be puffed up with pride. And, and there's some people who, who just feel invincible, like they're never going to die. David is saying, heed this warning. Because in God's grace, he's extending it. We have been warned. God has revealed what the future holds, how this world will end, who will prevail, and what will become of those who refuse him. All sinners are warned to give up their rebellion and humble themselves in submission to the Son and embrace him before it's too late. Verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear. Everyone's a servant. No matter your position, your status, or your wealth, everyone serves something or someone. The problem is that most of us serve ourselves. And the one who serves himself has a fool for a master. The only other way is to submit all that you are and all that you have to the Lord Jesus Christ. To serve the Lord with fear is to have an attitude of, that demonstrates awe, respect, and reverence toward him. To truly know who he is. He's holy, righteous, powerful, the ultimate judge, the one whose wrath is against all who sin. To serve the Lord with fear is to recognize his authority and to bow before him in humble submission, to yield your life and your will to him. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We should rejoice also. When we worship God, it should not look like a funeral. We should rejoice. If you know who God is, you shouldn't have to come to worship and wait for some song or moment to get you in the mood. You should praise God for his goodness. Joy should flood our hearts because the Lord has loved us. And he's made the ultimate sacrifice to redeem us. Joy should flood your hearts because the Lord graciously provides for his people. It's a great privilege to serve the great king, Jesus. Joy should flood our hearts because we are blessed to be a part of his kingdom, a kingdom that will triumph over all the kingdoms of the earth. We should rejoice, but we should also rejoice with trembling. Our worship should not be some emotional response to man-centered worship. As we rejoice, we should recognize the holiness and the sovereignty and the majesty of the Almighty God. 
we must never lose sight of the wrath of God. We should tremble at the thought of his judgment. And because we know this, we should seek to encourage others, people in our lives whom we love, to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. What does the psalmist tell these rebellious human beings to do? To be wise, to be warned, to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling, but chiefly they are to kiss the Son. Verse 12 says, kiss the Son. This is not a kiss of romance. This is a kiss of submission. A defeated king would kiss the hand or the cheek or the feet of the king that conquered them. Here, when the scripture says, kiss the son, it is asking us to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. While there is opportunity to do so, sinners must turn from their wicked ways and embrace the son by faith. Notice that it's the anger of the Son. It's the anger of Jesus rather than the Father that is to be avoided. Today, he is a loving Savior, offering forgiveness and mercy and grace. But on the last day, he will act as judge, the gentle lamb who gave himself at the cross of Calvary will become a fierce lion who will destroy his enemies. The only hope for rebellious mankind is in Jesus. We must kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. This is the good news that we proclaim. The good news. The good news that includes the bad news. In fact, there is bad news, there is worse news, there is good news, and there's the best news. The bad news is that we're sinners. Our sin separates us from God. The worst news is that there's nothing that we can do to fix what our sin has destroyed. The good news is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for our sins, and he rose from the dead for our justification. And the best news is that if a sinner runs to the cross today and trusts in Jesus, you will have free forgiveness, new life, and hope forevermore. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Psalm 1, it began with a blessing. You remember that from last week? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 1 begins with a blessing. Psalm 2 ends with a blessing. Look at verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in in him. What a way to end it. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A refuge is a strong tower. It's a safe place where you run in times of trouble. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Lord. Our only hope is to embrace Jesus Christ. Because there is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. The only refuge from God's judgment is in Jesus Christ. Sinners must kiss the Son today while there still is grace offered. Because one day he will speak in wrath, flee from God's anger, and find refuge in God's mercy. That's what you've done if you're a Christian. I've often thought, well, since God is a righteous God and angry at all those who rebel against him, and though I've been a Christian for many years, I still in my heart am a rebel against God's will for my life. Sometimes I'm disobedient. And there's not one of us in this room that can say otherwise. So why then, if God is righteous and destroys the rebel, why doesn't he destroy me? And the answer is that I have taken refuge in God's mercy. It's only by God's mercy that you and I are not consumed by the wrath of God. We can refuse Christ or we can take refuge in him. So my question to you this morning is, have you embraced God's son? Have you kissed the son? Those here this morning who do not believe in Jesus, I encourage you to pay attention to the invitation and the warning that is laid out here in this psalm. Some will not take this warning. Some will hear it and they'll ignore it. And so they will be judged by the Son. It says here that he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like pottery. And they will suffer an eternity in hell for rejecting him. Make sure that you're not among those people. The hands that he holds out for you to kiss are the hands that were pierced by nails when he was crucified in the place of those who believe in him. One day in the future, the wicked will be punished, but today is a day of grace. He invites you to come, repent of your sins, and believe in Jesus. And then to those of you this morning here who believe in Jesus, have you been witnessing about the Son and the judgment that he will bring? Have you been pleading with others to find refuge in Jesus? Have you been resisting God's rule in some area of your life? Consider these things today. And church, remember that our God is the God who sits in the heavens and laughs.
who has set Jesus on his holy hill. Jesus reigns, and he will reign forever. So no matter what opposition, no human power can destroy the rule and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who submit to the reign of Jesus have refuge from his wrath.